So welcome to our, our podcast for March. Uh, we're with Alex from The Right Place. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dan. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. So uh, it looks as if we're heading into spring uh, after the bad weather. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, things changing, I guess. It's always, uh, you know, the end of the financial year in April, uh, fast approaching. And I guess it's, a, a, you know, the time really where in the housing market, we're going to expect a number of changes. Absolutely. Like you said, it is, it's that time of year, um, coming to the end of the, the current tax year, and also April being, uh, together with October, being the two times a year where the government likes to bring in new legislation. So there's quite a few things that uh, are going on right now as we speak. But yeah. Also- so I understand then for landlords, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're renting one house or, or maybe, you know, you've got a portfolio of properties. At one point, uh, it looked as if you could actually deduct your mortgage payments and just really pay tax on the profit. Uh, but from the information that you've brought with you today it looks like you're actually going to be taxed on the whole lot yeah absolutely i mean that's that's the way it's going you know historically in common with every other business in the country um when you borrow money to invest in the business you can deduct the cost of, of the interest of that money to, to run the business so most people understand that when people are borrowing money to, to buy or to build properties they're normally borrowing on a mortgage so the interest for that mortgage has been deductible it's a perfectly legitimate business expense like every other business in the country um but 2015 the government decided that from 2017 they would start to gradually remove that as a legitimate business expense and last year or let's say the current tax year that we're in um, saw the first first phase of that. Of course, that's about to ramp up next month, April. So at the moment, in this current tax year, um, a lot of landlords won't be aware of it, won't be feeling the effects of this because they've not submitted their tax returns yet. But only 75% of their mortgage interest can be uh, claimed as a deduction against their income. Um, whereas from next month, in the next tax year, it's actually only going to be 50%. So it's going to make a huge difference. So that seems incredible, the cost of running a business, because let's face it, renting a house, uh, you know, is is a business as, as a land. But as a business cost, that just seems remarkable that you're not going to be able to take that into consideration. It's a huge deal breaker for an awful lot of landlords, because normally the mortgage interest is the biggest cost, yeah. the biggest single cost. So if you take away the ability for, for the business to deduct its single biggest cost, you know, it's, it's either going to go bust, uh, or it's going to have hugely increase what it yeah. charges its customers in order to make a much larger profit that then after tax is still just a small profit. So for for simple numbers then, if I sold mobile phones and I bought a mobile phone for £50 and then I sold it to you for £100, normally I would pay tax on the £50 profit that I've made. So when it comes to uh, owning a property and renting it out, what type of costs you know can be taken into consideration if you buy a house for four hundred thousand pounds is that a cost that you can put against your business straight away? no the capital costs so that example you've given yeah it's a trading cost yeah. perhaps the example i like to give people is imagine if you were in the car hire business so you bought a fleet of cars and you bought those with a loan um you'd be able to deduct the interest you paid on that loan uh, against the income from renting those yeah. cars i mean there'd be other deductions as well but it's quite straightforward every business can claim the cost of providing investment into that business um it seems very perverse that at a point in time where the government is saying that they're concentrating very heavily on the housing market wanting to improve things and make things more affordable that they're doing the one thing that could possibly destroy the private rented sector and make it um, far less affordable for the people that they're saying they want to help and i guess especially in the climate where people aren't you know being able to afford to buy and more people are renting these days you know we've already got a, a shortage of properties not just in milton Keynes but around the country potentially this could cause you know, shortage in the rental sector. Yes. Well, all I can say is wait till this time next year <laughs> and we will really be starting to, to feel the fallout of it. I mean, there's an awful lot of landlords that are 
um, selling or looking to sell. Yeah. Uh, and I think once they still start to feel the pinch from next year, when, when they start paying their first tax bill under the regime, of course, bear in mind that it's actually only going to get worse yeah. for the next three years. Um, I think that's going to have a you know huge impact. Because overall, people talk about supply and uh, demand as regards as house prices. But even if that amount of properties came onto the market, it's not really going to have a big dent in the prices as regards to affordability, is it? As, as regards I, as you know, people buying a property. It's not as if you know a property is going to drop by 50 grand just because all of a sudden there's more on the market. I can't see it myself. No. Um, I mean, first of all, the private rented sector makes up um, 20%, so a fifth of the housing market. So even if tomorrow every single house in the private rented sector went on the market, yeah, it would, it would have a huge effect, but it wouldn't be the whole of the market. Yeah. Um, but the reality is people are affected, going to be affected to different degrees. The perverse thing is that the, the landlords, the businesses that are going to be affected or are being affected to the great are the ones who are actually properly running it as a business, i.e. those that have multiple units. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a full-time job for them. That's the perverse situation here. It's not weeding out the, the people who are you know, renting grandma's flat after she passed away. It's actually it hits hardest those that are most heavily invested in the private uh, rental sector. Um, they're the people that are helping. Yeah. <laughs> They're helping in the situation. Uh, and I guess, that, you know, it's one of those things as well where the people that have done very well out of property and ended up paying them off, they're going to, you know, they're not going to be any different from this anyway if they've got no, no, no mortgage you, on the property. If you've got no mortgage on the property, then this particular change yeah. in tax law doesn't help you. But of course, if you're looking to expand your portfolio, we've still got the extra 3% stamp duty yeah. that hits, hits everyone. It hits yeah. commercial investors uh, and private investors. All right, well, let's move on to another subject. Uh, obviously, this was a, a hot potato if you was uh, selling a house a few years ago uh, energy efficiency mm, yes you know when you had to produce that big report just to sell a house and you had to find out what your energy efficiency was yeah those... uh, so this is obviously coming into play even more now in the rental sector yeah well those, those old home information packs uh are, you know not saying they're a good thing or a bad thing or whatever but they they, they were a very very short-lived thing yeah. they didn't seem to uh, achieve the uh, the desired aim but what did stick with us as part of that home information pack was the energy performance certificate that's part of european legislation um and you know I'm, it's actually quite a good thing i think that um domestic housing actually is, is the most inefficient um part of our industry let's say that contributes to global warming so actually making making people aware of how inefficient it is is, is a great thing um it's a double-edged sword though you've got to be very careful energy performance certificates were there to educate potential tenants potential buyers and sellers to the energy efficiency of that home what the government is doing from next month so from a beginning what's called the minimum energy efficiency standards and that will actually prohibit in the private rented sector um, any new tenancies of properties with an epc rating of f or g so the two low and there are certain exclusions there are certain reasons why uh, even a property with f or g rated could still be rented of course it's a drive to try and increase the energy efficiency of, of domestic housing which is great but it only applies to the private rented sector yeah. at the moment so it only being 20 percent of the market it doesn't actually it's not going to have a huge effect but it's probably a good start and i guess going on to our previous point about you know tax that's payable uh, i guess it's one of these things that if you're investing in insulation uh you know wall insulation loft insulation that type of thing that is something that you can kind of offset against your tax well you can and you can't um, right. a couple of years ago the government actually removed the incentive to private landlords to uh increase the energy efficiency of their homes right. because there was actually i can't what it called it but it was, it was a it was an item on your tax return that if you'd made contribution to something that improved the energy efficiency, you could actually claim it directly off of your tax bill. That changed. They removed that. And I, I honestly don't know yeah. why. But Could what's you... worse is um, just at the point where these minimum energy efficiency standards are coming in, um, the government has 
lost the ability for landlords to get finance, which they can't claim cost of interest against their tax bill, um, to actually do these works because what ran hand in hand with this original legislation is what they called the Green Deal Initiative, which was uh, a way for the major energy companies, um, solar panel producers, all those kind of things, to um, uh, invest in private homes to improve their thermal efficiency. And the the cost of that investment was essentially offset by the saving from the bill. But the Green Deal just died a death. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. And actually, the, under the current uh, energy efficiency standards, it does state that you only need to meet this particular uh, threshold um, if you can get finance from the Green Deal or one of the other initiatives, but they don't really exist anymore. Right. So it sort of leads us on to what the government is consulting on at the moment, one of the three consultations that we're going to mention uh, in this podcast, and that is the consultation to remove that exclusion that landlords don't have to in- improve the energy efficiency if they can't get access to, the, to this kind of finance initiative that the Green Deal was, was intended for. And instead, they want to remove that no upfront cost rule with a cost cap rule. So just at the point where they're hammering landlords, making them pay more tax, they're actually saying, right, we actually are going to want you to invest more in the thermal efficiency of your home. But by the way, if you need to borrow that money to make that investment, you won't be able to claim all of the interest of borrowing that money against your your income. Do I get leaflets through my door all the time saying if I have cavity wall installation, there's grants available, or if I have the loft done or something like that, there's grants available, it can be done free and all that type of stuff. Does that apply uh, in this type of case for rental properties? It or? does sometimes. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different kind of grants. They kind of come and go. Um, it, d- it just depends on, on the pots of money that, yeah. that are involved. Um, but it's very, very rare that a landlord themselves can actually benefit from the grant. It's normally the tenant. Yeah. So if the tenant, for example, is in receipt of certain benefits, then they might be eligible for that free grant. Yeah, because I guess they're paying the home. electric, aren't they, at yes. the end of the yeah, day? Yeah, precisely. So, so I guess there's an opportunity there for the landlord and the tenant to work together Yes, uh, yeah. to and improve it, the property's energy rating. Absolutely. There's been a whole bunch of these, uh, I'd say over the last five or six years, that a lot of landlords have, have taken advantage of with their tenants. Um, but they all seem to be coming to an end now. It seems yeah. that now that the, the idea of actually having ways to um, ways for landlords to be able to borrow to invest in the thermal efficiency, they seem to be removed, and the government is going to want landlords to uh, to find that money without being able to borrow it, and if they can borrow it, without being able to offset all the cost of the yeah. interest of borrowing it. Perverse. Uh, let's move on to uh, electrical safety then. I know that when I was renting a property, you had to have your gas uh, safety certificate. Here at MKFM, we have to have our plug sockets and electrical uh, appliances checked once a year. Yeah. But there was nothing really, um, you know, requiring me to do that as a landlord, you know, even though things might not have been checked for a number of years. But I believe there's some changes in that as well. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's another consultation going on at the moment, the electrical safety in the private rented sector. You're absolutely right. What the consultation is recommending is that um, mandatory electrical checks are conducted in private rented properties every five years by a competent person, so a qualified electrician, someone like that. Um, what I would say is for years and years and years, in fact, since 1985, um, the Landlord and Tenant Act placed a, a legal responsibility on landlords to make sure that their electrical uh, installations were safe. It just didn't require them to produce an, uh, a certificate to do so. So um, I'm not against the idea of having um, five yearly electrical checks um, because I'm an experienced landlord myself, but I'm not an electrician. So I can go around and make sure that 
the plug sockets aren't cracked and they're not falling off the walls and you know things look okay but the reality is is that once every five years isn't too draconian is it to have an electrician come in and give the place a a good once over you know an MOT on a car that's more than three years old is every year so for a house to be perhaps a hundred years old uh, and not have a requirement for an electrician to have given it a a clean bill of health that doesn't seem right doesn't sit well so um, yeah I'm not against it I'm a little bit concerned about um, the knock-on effects of needing uh, this kind of thing because um, uh, what I am aware of with the electrical certificates and they're actually called electrical installation condition reports the ICRs um, the, the electrical installation might be perfectly safe but it might not be up to the current regulations the current, current wiring standards and so you'll have one electrician will say oh that's a fail and then another electrician might say well I would just recommend that is done rather than put it as a fail so there does seem to be a little bit of disparity in the industry about how these things should be approached so I'd like to think that would get yeah. tied up Sounds like a similar thing to when they changed the regulations on the flues on your gas boiler a few years ago, where you had to have inspection hatches and all that type of stuff. Yes, it yeah, was like, that, uh, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. um, we actually had a, a, one of those situations just last month with a gas inspection. Tenants had put a padlock on the uh, on the loft hatch to stop right. the kids getting up there, and the gas engineer went around, he couldn't check the flue. Right. <laughs> so looking at the notes that we've got here then, electrical uh, inspection of what we're talking about is probably around uh, something like £170 per property, is it? Yeah, I mean, here in Milton Keynes, yeah. we, we tend to have them done quite regularly on our, on our own stock, um, and... Uh, we tend to find that for a three-bedroom house, you're probably looking at 150, 160, 170 yeah. pounds, something like that. So, uh, for a smaller house, maybe a little bit less. For a larger house, uh, it could be more. But like I said, it's the knock-on effects of needing those that the government has acknowledged. And what they're saying is, is that it's not just the cost of the checks, but if, as a result of those checks, there are, let's say, recommendations or things mm. that one might recommend and the other might say is has to be done in order for the certificate to pass. You know, they are saying they're looking at a cost of around 170 pounds per property per year once this requirement comes into play um and again it, you know it's not a huge amount but it's it's a cost of business which needs to pass on yeah. pass on to the customer well, that, that's what was exactly going through my head there is like looking at this uh you know tax business of not being able to claim back the interest looking at you know maybe a mandatory 200 pound every you know 500 years the energy rating and all the rest of it, it is a cost that somewhere someone's going to have to pay absolutely and ultimately it's probably going to be the person that rents the property like with every business yeah the customer pays the bills <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh, so let's talk uh, about complaints then because again this has been, been something that's been in the news recently uh, about if you've got a complaint between a landlord and a tenant and obviously things were changed uh, I think a couple of years ago about holding the deposit and you know these days that the agents like yourself are a mediator if there is a problem but I believe there's going to be some changes in the way complaints are handled. Yes I like the use of the word mediator there sometimes yeah. we feel like social workers <laughs> but yeah absolutely well look um, what happened uh, it was in 2014 is the government brought in um, legislation to say that all letting agents had to be members of a consumer redress scheme um, and uh, there was one obvious choice let's say that sort of sprung up but the government said no there needs to be more competition in the market so we need a choice of consumer redress schemes for agents to belong to so I think there's three or four um, in the market that agents can belong to at the moment they all follow the same rules but it depends which organization you're affiliated with that might dictate which um, consumer redress scheme you want to join but it was the government's intention to have a, a choice um, actually in the last MKFM podcast uh, we discussed the fact that the government was consulting on perhaps bringing landlords into the scope of that so not just letting agents need to be um, a member of a redress scheme but also private landlords need to be members of a consumer redress scheme again something I'm, I'm quite happy I'm not against that at all they were actually also talking about bringing developers into that and house builders into that um, but 
what they're also talking about doing is now getting rid of the choice of consumer redress schemes that they insisted upon. Right. And they're consulting on whether they should just be one great, big, massive um, consumer redress scheme. Yeah. And, and the idea of these consumer redress schemes um, is that they have a code of practice that their members will abide by. They have uh, complaints, efficient complaints handling processes. Um, you know, they're not a bad thing. As an agent, we have to be a member of a consumer redress scheme. As a landlord, I'd be perfectly happy to be a member of a consumer redress scheme. You know, we consider ourselves professional both as landlords uh, and letting agents. But it's going to have a cost associated with it. Um, these schemes aren't free to run. And, uh, and so as, as agents, we have to pay to be members of them. As landlords, we would have to pay. The builders would have to pay. Um, one of the other things that they're considering doing in this consultation um, is a proposal to name and shame poor practice. And I'm always very uncomfortable yeah. with these kind of discussions because, it, you know, these kind of things can be very one-sided and you have to be so careful um, about how you approach these. My personal opinion is don't have that kind of thing because it's open to abuse. Yeah. Have an efficient system that deals with complaints and therefore there won't be serial offenders. Yeah. Um, but that consultation, I mean, that actually closes on the 16th of April. Right. Um, so there's there's plenty of time there for, for anyone who wants to, to take part in that consultation to visit the government website uh, and take part. Now, I, I know when I rented a, a property and it was one of these situations that I was moving, uh, funny enough, to Milton Keynes. I didn't know if we'd settle in Milton Keynes. There was an opportunity uh, that we might move back to the uh, south coast. So anyway, we're, we're letting our house out. And, uh, you know, we're not big animal lovers, uh, you know, particularly not of dogs. You know, Mrs. D, uh, absolutely petrified of dogs. So we kind of wanted to stipulate, you know, we're happy for the owner to have a cat, maybe a budgie or whatever they want to have, but no dogs because we didn't want to move back into a house. You what, know. About, what about bears? <laughs> Alligators? <laughs> yeah, no, the dog in it. But, you know, just looking here, that Labour uh, wants a return uh, to where renters could have a default right to keep pets. Absolutely. It's, you know, Labour are positioning themselves at the moment as the political party that are going to champion and campaign certain things which I think just the problems don't really exist. Um, there is a massive restriction on the ability of uh, anyone who rents, whether it's in social housing or in private uh, rental, um, to keep pets. Now, at the right place, we actually consider ourselves a pet-friendly letting agency. Part of the reason for that is everyone that works in the business is a pet owner. Um, and I myself am a pet owner. I own a dog. And we know from the condition of our own homes that you can own a pet, dog, cat, bird, whatever. I'm not sure about alligator or yeah. bear, but you can have those. And then they don't cause damage and they don't foul the place. Um, so having positioned ourselves as a pet-friendly letting agency, where the property or the landlord are able to uh, accept pets, we have a very robust policy um, that doesn't prevent tenants from keeping pets. There are just certain things, extra things that they need to do to make sure that the risk to the, the, the landlord and, and his property and his contents um, are reduced. But, you know, as long as those boxes are ticked, we don't feel that the tenant should be prevented from keeping and, pets. And I guess that's a good point. It is actually up to the tenant in the same respect to if they've got an untidy uh, teenager or maybe you know an 18 month old baby uh, you know it's up to them to obviously clean the carpets or look after the walls or whatever you know might happen yeah. over their yeah. uh, period of their tenancy biggest problem this is one of the biggest problems we had to overcome in terms of being a pet friendly letting agency is if your pet damages the property or the landlord's contents. As a tenant, yes, you're responsible for paying for it. Most of us have insurance cover that prevents accidental damage if we fall over or smash a window yeah. or something like that. And hardly any of the insurance companies will cover accidental damage by a tenant's pets. Our insurer does. And that's part of the reason why we're able to be a pet-friendly right. letting agency. But most insurers don't offer that. So it means that as a tenant, you are accepting that risk and you've got no way to, to offset that risk through your insurance. Yeah. Um, but our insurer does. 
So, no, that, you know, that, that, it's, it's the few insurers it does. Yeah. Um, uh, enables us to continue being a pet-friendly. And I guess uh, these days, smoking in a rental property is an absolute no-no. I think smoking is an absolute no-no. Yeah. Um, just, just while we're yeah. talking about things that could <laughs> damage properties and all the rest of it, but I think that's something that's been in place for quite some time now, isn't it? As yeah. Uh, we're talking about um, consultations on electrical yeah. safety. The reality is, is that, you know, an awful lot of house fires occur from people smoking, falling yeah. asleep um, with lit, lit cigarettes. Um, you know, I think the government should be looking to actually remove that as a lifestyle choice from people if they if, if they are going to make electrical safety, fire safety a, a big issue. I think it's something they need to consider. But going back to this issue that they have discussed about um, giving renters the default right to keep pets, there's a lot of circumstance under which it's just not allowed or it's just not appropriate. Leasehold properties normally have terms in their head lease that prevent any of the leaseholders from keeping pets. And of course, if they're sublet yeah. they're letting to tenants and I guess if they're it's not a block allowed. of flats or something exactly. like that exactly yeah. if you imagine if it's a 20, 30 story block of flats you know do you really want 10 dogs barking <laughs> on, on every on every single floor they've got nowhere to go the poor things yeah. you know um, so there are certain circumstances where it's just absolutely not right so for it to be a default right would cause huge problems I think actually if um, the, the current government or the Labour government or whoever said look we're going to have we're going to have an initiative here where we're going to work with industry to find out what the things are that are preventing um, landlords from from accepting pets and we're going to try and work on those things to enable landlords to keep pets. We know full well that almost half the country owns a pet of some description. Uh, some of them might be little things you know, kept in glass boxes and uh, you know, and they're not going to cause damage to a property, but an awful lot of families own pets, cats, dogs, that kind of thing. So actually to exclude pet-owning tenants from your potential customers. It's bonkers. You're excluding you know, a third to yeah. a half of your potential market. And our experience as a pet-friendly letting agency is that almost good pet owners tend to stay put longer. Yeah. And they do look after the property. And they do look after their, their pets. are like an extension of their family. They do look after them. There's always the exception. There's always the, the, the And I guess as well, it's going to come down to references and all that type of stuff. They're not just going to get a dog because they're moving into someone's property. The chances are they've had the dog or whatever the animal is for quite some time. So the references would obviously back up. That's you right. Know, that they haven't had a problem in a in a previous uh, property. That's right, and uh, you know, and, and as long as it is a genuine reference that says you know the place yeah. is always kept tidy and that kind of thing, you know, you should be able to, to to rely on it. But the important thing is, you know, to protect landlords' interests, we have to make sure that there is an insurable cover there for accidental damage by pets, and we can offer that. Let's uh, move on to no for evictions, and uh, the common sense bit in, in me would say that this is where someone's possibly been the perfect tenant, and all of a sudden the landlord comes along and says, right, we want you out. Yeah, I mean this term no-fault evictions is something that's being used in the media and by the Labour Party to create an impression of, uh, some, of a problem that doesn't really exist. Um, what they refer to as no-fault evictions, everybody else refers to as Section 21 possession. And the reason for that is the Housing Act in 1988 brought in under Section 21 of the Housing Act the ability for landlords to gain possession of their properties. Um, and a landlord might need to gain possession of his property for all sorts of reasons. He may need to sell it because the government well, makes it possible to make a profit. That was going to be one of my <laughs> questions. You know, if you've got someone, uh, you know, like my similar circumstances where I've moved to another area, you know, let my house out, uh, all of a sudden you need to sell that property because you need the money back out of yeah. it. What would happen in this type of situation? Absolutely. So that's happening a lot at the moment. And, and you know, unfortunate headlines that say things like, um, you know, the biggest cause of homelessness at the moment is is uh, landlords evicting through no-fault evictions. No, the biggest cause of, the catalyst for that is the fact that landlords have to sell. Okay, you might have the perfect tenant, but if your financial circumstances dictate that you've got to sell that asset, 
you've got to sell that asset. You can't, you know, you can't continue to make a loss on something. You can't be forced to continue yeah. to make a, a loss on something. So the reality is, is that when the Housing Act 1988 brought in um, a huge redress in terms of the, 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 the balance of power between landlord and tenant, it was a huge catalyst to, to um, revitalise the private rental sector. I mean, the private rental sector dropped to you know just about ten percent of the of the housing market in the late seventies. By the late eighties and, and early nineties, you know, it was starting to really thrive and, and really grow. So actually, the Housing Act that contains the Section Twenty One possession procedure was the the catalyst that created the vibrant. Um, private rented sector that we've got at the moment without it it wouldn't have happened and part of the reason for that is because the mortgage lenders saw that there was a, 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 the ability for the, the lender if they had to repossess that the landlord's property or the landlord if for whatever reason they needed to gain possession of the property back there was a defined procedure that enabled landlords to do that and that gave them the confidence to start investing and, and the buy to let mortgage was created and that's what you know that was the catalyst that, that has created the hugely uh, successful and vibrant private rental sector we've got at the moment so if you actually remove that ability we'll be taking hugely regressive steps in in my opinion but what you what we really have to to tackle here is that the headlines are about no fault evictions, which shouldn't really use that term. Yes, Section 21 procedure doesn't require the tenant to be in breach. It just requires the landlord to need possession of his property back. But landlords aren't going to evict a good tenant who pays the rent on time just on a whim. Why would you do that? That's your business. That's your customer. You don't kick your customers out the door. Typically, uh, when you rent a property, someone might offer you a, a, you know, a six-month term. You know, Do you think it should be a case that you know different lengths of time uh, it should be offered. So, if there is a landlord where they're not selling, uh, you know, where they're not planning to sell the property, you know, might offer a three-year, you know, lease, and then at least someone knows that they're going to be there for three years. You know, it's weird because this is part of the the, the political argument about this. Right. And again, it's about solving a problem that doesn't actually exist. We know from the latest English housing survey that we discussed um, last year, we know that the average tenancy length is increasing year on year. At the moment, it's over four years. So if the average tenancy lasts four years, but the Housing Act says that only the first six months are protected, yeah. why are we looking to extend the, the, the initial protected period when we know that the majority of tenancies far, far exceed it already? Being a landlord and being a, a tenant, what that actually means is, is that it's a business relationship. Landlords need tenants. Tenants need landlords. Um, landlords want good tenants who want to stay put and who want to look after the property, enjoy living there and, and pay their rent. They don't want to get rid of them. There are circumstances where they will need possession of their property back. But like I said, no business owner wants to kick out his best customers. It's, it is a problem that doesn't really exist. So if we look to artificially increase the, the, the protected period, let's say, or the length of time, the default term for, for any kind of tenancy, we've got to then start looking at mortgage lenders. They tend to restrict it to a maximum of 12 months. We've got to start looking at insurers. They, they tend to restrict it to 12 months. You know, Again, if the government was looking to the, to the industry and saying, what can we do to improve this and bring an industry on board? That would be great. Instead, what they're looking to do is they're looking to attack the landlords so that the landlords are forced to do something, but then they're being prevented from doing it by a mortgage lender or an insurer. It's, it's a perverse way to go about, I think, trying to improve um, uh, the private rental sector. All right, well, we've run out of time uh, on this podcast. Uh, looking forward to the session that we'll be doing in April. If people want to contact you, how can they do that? As always, they can call the office 01908 904 334. Alex from the right place. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Darren.